G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Up next, a timely reminder and a challenge from Dr. Michael Yusuf on Leading the Way. Satan can do his worst. Secular media can sharpen their swords. The government officials may unleash an anti-God forces. The schools may discriminate against the morally righteous. The workplace may be intolerant of believers. Some may lose their jobs because of the righteous standing, but none, none, none will have the victory over the elect of God. Welcome to Leading the Way, featuring the Bible teaching of pastor and author Dr. Michael Yusuf. Increasingly in recent years, we've seen more and more clear-cut battle lines as the world stands up trying to squash out the life and impact of Jesus and His church. Enemies may be aligning, but they're standing up against an enemy that cannot and will not be defeated. Just read the end of the book. Today on Leading the Way, Dr. Yusuf continues his powerful series, Hope for this present crisis, with a deep dive into the words of Psalm 129. You'll get practical words about handling and standing up to the persecution that God's people have faced, are facing, and will face as enemies continue to come together against God's people. Listen with me as Dr. Yusuf begins today's powerful and practical teaching time. Psalm 129 is the type of psalm where the song leader, whom they call a cantor, he's really the music leader, and the cantor would recite one word, and then the people would recite the same word after him, repeat that word. Look with me, please, in verses 1 and 2. Israel, youth, is the time when they came into their own as a nation in the middle of the slavery of Egypt. For 400 years, they experienced pain and suffering and slavery before God delivered them. That is considered to be the time of Israel's youth. In fact, the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea, in chapter 11, verse 1, he talks about that. He said, the Lord speaking through him, he said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In fact, that is why Matthew, the writer of the gospel, he sees the fulfillment of that very prophecy in Jesus when he escaped into Egypt for a period of time, and God said, out of Egypt I called my son. In other words, Matthew is saying that Israel was the son that was not obedient to God, but Jesus is the son who's obedient, in whom this prophecy of Hosea completely fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. After years of slavery under Pharaoh, yet they kept on going anyway. (laughs) When Pharaoh failed to cull their numbers 
he began to kill every newborn male. But God protected Moses, and he raised him up to be his instrument to deliver them from slavery. But it was not only in, watch these words, it was not only in their use that they were oppressed, but from the youth they've been oppressed. In the youth, but also from that time on they've been oppressed. From the youth, the psalmist writes. Most of you know biblical history, and I'm not going to repeat it. From the earliest days to the day of the writing of this psalm, they were harassed and persecuted by the Philistines, by the Assyrians, by the Moabites, <laughs> by the Ammonites, by the Edomites, and all the mosquito bites. <laughs> In fact, the prophet Amos names the big cities that were designed and had strategy to oppress and destroy Israel, and he names the city Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, to mention just a few. And yet, they all were judged for dealing treachery and wanton destruction. All of the nations were judged. Later on, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took some of the Jews into exile in Babylon. They were followed by the Greeks and the Romans. <laughs> and in the Middle Ages, the European powers expelled them from their territories and confined them into ghettos. And it's still fresh in our memories. The Nazis who sought to exterminate them. Well may Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. They may oppress me from my they have not gained the victory. This, my beloved, ought to be the testimony of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. They, that means no one, no one, no one will ever have victory over the remnant of Christ. <laughs> Satan can do his worst. Secular media can sharpen their swords. The government officials may unleash an anti-God forces. The schools may discriminate against the morally righteous. The workplace may be intolerant of believers. Some may lose their jobs because of the righteous standing, but none, 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 none will have the victory over the elect of God. This is a word from the Lord, not just for some of you, but for all of you. The second stanza of the psalm is what the theologians give it a big word called im, that's I am, purgatory, imprecatory, prayer. The word purgatory means prayer. That's all it means. When you add the letters I am in front of it, it becomes prayer against prayer against. That is a prayer asking God to judge all those who hate and oppress God's people. 
Beloved, would you please listen to me? This is very important because I can tell you some of these modern Bible commentators, you see them literally from the pages of their commentaries. You see them squirming, and you see them wiggling, and you see them kind of playing a mental gymnastics and say, oh, but Jesus said in Matthew 5, we are to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. There is no contradiction here. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. This passage is not a contradiction to the spirit of what Jesus taught us in Matthew 5. He's not talking about vindictiveness or taking vengeance or judgmental attitude. No. There is no contradiction between the Old and the New Testament. Of course, we are to pray for our enemies. And Jesus commands us that. He doesn't suggest it. He commands us to pray for our enemies. In fact, Jesus explained this command in Matthew chapter 5, particularly verse 45. In verse 45, he says, do this because of what theologians call common graces. What's that common graces? Well, the sun shines upon the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls for the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of these common graces, therefore, we need to pray for our enemies. That's what our Lord is telling us. But that does not mean that God will not judge the wicked in due course. He will. Every time we pray and say, your kingdom come, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, we are saying, God, judge the evil and the wicked. Every time we say, thy kingdom come, we are praying that God would judge the wicked people. Listen to me. Jesus is not saying that we should not want justice to take place or that we should not want to see justice of God on his enemies? No. So how should we pray for our enemies? Well, first of all, we need to pray for them to be converted. We need to pray for them to repent. We need to pray for them to turn away from their wickedness and receive Christ as Savior. We pray for them to cease from their evil. As we are seeing in the ministry of leading the way all over the world, people who were terrorists, People who were persecuting Christians have become the children of the living God. That's what we need to pray. But if they do not repent, if they do not turn from their wicked ways, if they do not turn from their enmity to God and His people, then we don't pray for them to prosper in their wickedness. That is a screwed-up thinking on the part of so-called progressive Christians. We do not pray for them to succeed in their evil. That's not what our Lord is telling us. We do not pray for them to be blessed in their wickedness so that they may be more wicked. No. We pray as the disciples did in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 29. Lord, look upon the threat and grant your servants continually to speak your word in boldness and in courage, with courage. The reason our Lord told us to pray for our enemies, first and foremost, that they would be converted. But secondly, He's telling us not to take matters into our own hands. 
We don't take matters into our homes, but we go to Him. No wonder He said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And let me tell you, I lived long enough to know this, that His vengeance is far stronger, far better, far more powerful than you can ever dream. In fact, there are three things here in this imprecatory prayer that I want to share with you. No, that's not a three-point sermon, so don't panic. These are just three things I want to share with you, okay? And if you're taking notes, write them down. In verse 5, he prays that they will not be honored. In verses 6 and 7, he prays that they would not succeed. And in verse 8, he prays that they will not be blessed. Look at them with me very quickly. The honor that the enemy seeks in the Old Testament sense is the honor that comes from military victory, especially if Israel is crushed. And the psalmist is asking for, with all that he's asking for, is for his enemies to be turned back, is for the enemy experience shame of defeat. Beloved, we must not, we should not ask for the defeat of the righteous. Because I know when two Christians have a disagreement or argument, their temptation is trying to take revenge. He said, no, 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 no. This is only about the wicked and evil people. Only upon those who inflict wicked actions on God's people. We should ask for their evil wickedness to be exposed and the righteous be vindicated. Not only that they not be honored. Secondly, he said, verses 6 and 7, that they would not succeed in their plans. The psalmist uses a very quaint but very effective imagery. And you have to understand the Middle East to understand that imagery. It's very unusual. Even though we've seen in some cities like New York and other cities is what they have, roof garden. That's not what he's talking about. He's praying that, that the wicked will be like the grass that falls on a rooftop which, of course, withers and and dies before even it begins to blossom. You say, how can the grass grow on rooftop? You've got to understand, these roofs are made of mud. They're mud roofs, so if the seeds would fall on them, some will sprout, but not for very long, because the soil is shallow, and there is no provision of water, and therefore those will die instantly. They will not grow into a big harvest. Any grass on the rooftop would quickly die. And the psalmist is asking that the wicked might not even have the smallest chance of succeeding. He wants their plans to shrivel up completely and die. So much so that the reaper would not have enough for a handful, or put some harvest under his arm. Question, is it wrong to pray that the efforts of the evil ones would not succeed? Is it wrong to pray that their evil and wicked designs would come to naught? The answer is absolutely not. It is not wrong. It is not wrong. It is not wrong. Have you got this? It is not wrong. We have sadly become so tolerant and accepting of evil that they have grown emboldened. 
<laughs> in the name of compassion, love, and cultural relevance, we are being willingly deceived. You notice I said willingly? John Stott says, preaching man and his merits instead of Christ and his cross, and substituting the one for the other, so that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ, which has become common happening today. First of all, we pray that they would not be honored. Secondly, we pray that they will not succeed. And thirdly, verse 8, we pray that they will not be blessed or prosper in their evil designs. This request in verse 8 is connected to the blessing in verse 7. He's connected to that harvest in verse 7. See, in Old Testament times, it was common thing to do is to pray for the harvest and pray for the reapers, those who are working hard to harvest the crop, to bless them as they go. That was a common thing. You see it in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, with Boaz. He was blessing them as they go. But it would be wrong to bless evildoers. To bless evildoers would be betrayal of righteousness and an offense to God. It would be like a nation or somebody in a nation who will cooperate with the enemy. We call them traitors, right? In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 4, we see a picture of the dragon standing before the woman who's about to give birth so that he may devour the child as soon as he's born. And we know the woman is Israel, and the Messiah, the Son, Jesus, the Christ, was born, came out of Israel. And this is a prophetic picture, my friends. The child is being saved by being snatched by God and being placed on the throne. And that is where Jesus is now. He's on the throne. We know that this is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, where Satan constantly striking at the heel of Jesus, constantly, constantly, constantly. But praise God, Christ crushed his head. From that moment, Jesus from the moment he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Satan goaded King Herod not only to go and kill him, kill all the babies in that town. And then all the way to the most unjust, the most criminal act of kangaroo court that sentenced the, most, the only perfect sinless Son of God to die on the cross. All the way through, Satan was out to destroy the Son of God. But praise God, on the third day, Jesus rose with every ounce of His omnipotence out of the grave. This is the fulfillment of verse 3 of Psalm 129. Plowmen plowed my back and made their furrows long. They scourged the back of our Savior, like a farmer plows his field. Isaiah the prophet in 53.5 anticipate this suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, He is pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment 
that brought us peace was upon him. Now, beloved, listen to me. Victory that the psalmist is speaking about will never, 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 never go to Satan and his followers. Victory belongs to Jesus and his followers. Revelation 11:15 says, "The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ." And I can't wait to see that. And it's going to happen maybe sooner than we think. <laughs> Amen. Because Jesus lives, we live also. Because Jesus has been victorious, we shall be victorious too. Because Jesus defeated Satan and evil, we will defeat Satan and evil. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you'll have troubles. But listen, don't miss that most important part. But, can you say but with me? Take heart, I have overcome the world. The psalmist affirms, they did not gain victory over me. They did not gain victory over me. Let me tell you this as I come to the end, conclude. I am sure that some of you might be asking, why is this pattern of oppression of Israel and then victory? Why is this pattern? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ suffered greatly and then received victory in the resurrection. Why do Christians suffer and persecution and then are given victory? Why? And the answer is found in the Scripture. So that we know that our power is not from ourselves, but from God. Yeah. You see, that is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, all the way to 11, could say with confidence, we have this treasure. What treasure is he talking about? The gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why clay? Why are they not in iron? Why are they not in a safe? Why in jars of clay? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, amen belongs here. He said, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that His life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. There is a very forceful Christian battle cry. It's in Latin, and it's placed in the Sinai, where supposedly the burning bush had taken place. It says, yet not consumed. Yet not consumed. Will you say that with me? Yet not consumed. Dr. Michael Yusuf with a reminder that even though you may be hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, you have victory in Jesus. This is Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Yusuf. Has today's message stirred spiritual questions? Questions you'd like to talk through with one of our pastoral team? We'll start by visiting ltw.org slash Jesus.
You know, God is positioned leading the way, especially in recent years, to have a gospel influence in your neighborhood and neighborhoods like yours in many other parts of the world. Recently, a note came to our office that boosted the courage and strength of our team, and we hope it'll encourage you to know ways God is moving right now. A man shared how he had been involved in many illegal activities, like human trafficking, gun smuggling, and more. While serving his sentence in prison, he came to know Jesus through leading the way. He shared the joy he had experienced by purchasing a TV set for his prison cell so he could watch more programs and grow deeper in his faith. He asked for prayer, that he would allow God to completely change him and grow him spiritually, especially during his season in prison. Please pray for those relying on leading the way as part of their spiritual diet. Well, thanks for listening and plan to join Dr. Yusuf again next time when he passionately proclaims uncompromising truth on Leading the Way. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.